turn in your Bible, please, to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. May we pray together, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the honor of standing in this pulpit to preach the Word of God again today. I thank You for those who have prayed, who have given sacrificially of interest and encouragement and prayer and love. I thank You for those men of God who have stood in this place in the last weeks to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. And now, O oh Father, I want to give again to Thee all the talents, gifts, all the weaknesses and the strengths, all there is of me to Thee. In an act of recommitment and dedication, Thou mightst be all and in all and have all there is of me. Until that time, and You said it's enough, and You call me to be with Thee. I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would move across this congregation. And those who listen by radio and anyone who is not saved, may thy spirit draw them to Jesus. Thank you, Father, that in us there is nothing. But as that wonderful sermon and song has just reminded us, if there be any praise, if there be any glory, let it all go to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long in the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them which are your masters according to the flesh, which fear, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing may any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. William A. Smart was a Civil War veteran. He lived until 1919. His birthday was on June the 5th.
He raised his motherless family in the wild pioneer Northwest. He had a daughter whose name was Miss Dodd. And in 1910, Mrs. Dodd wanted to honor her father because of his sacrifice, because of the nobleness of his life and all the years that he had invested in his family with very little return except them. And so she lived in Spokane, Washington. She went to the various pastors, wrote letters to the various pastors, and she thought what a splendid idea it would be not just to honor my own father, but on his birthday, honor all the fathers in Spokane. And she wrote a letter to the various pastors and asked if they would cooperate and if they would do this in their various churches. Well, those preachers couldn't get their sermons ready by June the 5th, so they all agreed to designate the third Sunday in June, and on that Sunday, they would all honor the fathers in their congregations. That's the way Father's Day began. Miss Dodd didn't quit there. She began to write to other pastors in other areas. In the years that ensued, she wrote to the congressman, and eventually the Congress of the United States passed a resolution that the third Sunday of June should be the day in which America would honor her fathers. President Woodrow Wilson gave Father's Day its first official recognition in 1916, and in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge urged the observance of Father's Day in the entire nation and all of the possessions and territories of America. On April 24, 1972, President Richard Nixon was the first to sign a presidential resolution setting aside the third Sunday in June in the calendar of America as a day when we honor our fathers. Mrs. Dodd died at the age of 96 on March 22, 1978, just last year. But she left behind her a world that has set aside a special day to recognize our fathers. And today, on this third Sunday of June, in 60 nations of the world, congregations, as well as clubs and other groups, are recognizing the fathers of America. As a matter of fact, every year there's a Father of the Year chosen from the various groups in the secular society and the secular world. This year, there were eight choices, and if you read your paper the other day, you noticed those men. Sam Irvin was chosen because of his emphasis in Watergate as the Senator Father of the Year. Eli Wallach was chosen as the Performing Arts Father of the Year. Congressman Jack Kemp was chosen as the Legislative Father of the Year. Governor Jay Rockefeller of West Virginia was chosen as the Gubernatorial Father of the Year. Joe Torrey, manager of the New York Mets, was chosen as the Sports Father of the Year. Chuck Scarborough, NBC newsman and anchorman and author and communication, he was called the Communications Father of the Year. Tom Wicker was called the Columnist of the Year. And Jim Jensen, CBS newscaster, 
was given the Great Dad Award. But with all of its secular emphasis today, and with all the exchanging of cards and greetings and gifts, the idea of Father's Day is rooted deeply in the Word of God. The Scripture has much to say concerning fathers. And I've chosen just a few passages to lay on our hearts this morning the strength, the Bible admonition concerning fathers. Today, June the 17th, 1979, as we observe Father's Day, the SALT Peace Treaty is about to be signed in, Viet in Vienna. Crime is on the upswing in our world. Sin is on the rampant with incest, open sex, open nudity. Down in Houston where we've been this week, it was nothing to pass streets with open neck, pictures of naked women on the big billboards and naked men. You pick up Playgirl, Playboy, and all of the magazines, the pornographic magazines that are available on the newsstands of America, and we see something of the commentary, the day in which we live. A time when premarital sex is on the upswing. We've forgotten what the Word of God says about thou shalt not commit adultery. And instead of obeying the Bible injunction, we're trying to insert abortion as a plan of birth control in our society. The Christian schools are under attack by the IRS. This is a society which lives on the brink of tragedy. The FBI has reported that people spend eight times more hours at the movies than they do in Sunday school. Only one in every 12 persons in the United States attends church. Nine out of children, nine out of 10 children quit Sunday school before they're 15. There are more barmaids in the United States than college girls. 100,000 girls disappear every year into white slavery as men and women throw away the wealth of purity and sanctity. There are three, three times as many criminals as college students. And there's an average of 10 suicides in the United States every day. Alcohol has become a serious national and international problem. We're living in an age when young people have gotten most of their standards from the television and from the movies. And in many instances, when teenagers go together, they feel like the natural fulfillment of a date is to have, to show how much they can physically love one another and fondle each other's bodies and go all the way into premarital sex, throwing to the winds and the whirlwind the Bible injunction, thou shalt not. And I submit to you this morning, on this Father's Day, in June of 1979, the Word of God has not changed nor altered one iota concerning all of this. And we need to go back to the Word to see what God wants to say to us. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This section of Ephesians deals with a Holy Spirit-filled life 
and how people will live who are filled with the Holy Spirit. It begins actually in chapter 5, verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then in the next verses, there is an unfolding of how the Spirit-filled man, how the Spirit-filled person, how the Spirit-filled individual will live. In verse 19, he'll be a singing Christian. In verse 20, he'll be a grateful Christian, that is, the Spirit-filled person. In verse 21, he'll be a humble Christian. In verse 22, a wife who is filled with the Holy Spirit will submit herself unto her own husband in all things, recognizing that the husband is the head of the home, even as Christ is the head of the church and gave himself for it. And in verse 25, a husband who loves the Lord, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, is told to love his wife. Incidentally, the Scripture does not tell women to love their husbands. Isn't that strange? The reason for this is when a husband properly loves his wife and shows that love through tenderness, through gentleness, through graciousness, through thinking of the little things, through constantly wooing, continuing to woo that woman, he will awaken in her the love, the Scripture says. Now, how do you know that, preacher? Do you know it from experience? No. I know it from what the Word of God says. And I'll tell you, I've never been bitten by a rattlesnake. But I'm not, not going to fool around with them because I know what rattlesnakes are. A person does not have to experience everything to know what to say. The Word of God plainly tells men how to get the affection and love of their wives. And the Word of God plainly tells a wife how to get her husband to stay in love with her. You read Ephesians chapter 5 carefully, closely, and you will find that a spirit-filled man, a spirit-filled woman, can live their lives together. Now, of course, there are some who play hooky from God's standard. There are some women who refuse to be spirit-filled. They try to find the satisfaction of their lives outside their homes. There are some men who refuse to be spirit-filled and let the Bible direct their lives, and they try to find satisfaction some other place their family and their children, their home goes on the rocks. In chapter 6, the Scripture tells children who are filled with the Holy Spirit how they're to behave. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother. In chapter, in chapter 6, verse 4, it tells fathers, provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Again, in, chapter, in verse 5, servants will be obedient to them who are your masters. And in verse 9, masters do the same thing, forbearing, threatening. And in verse 10, sort of a final conclusion, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. In other words, a Spirit-filled Christian will find in these verses spiritual strength fodder, so to speak, that will give grace and direction and guidance in all of the affairs of life. Now, not all men walk after the Spirit. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, we read an interesting illustration. And Adonijah, the son of Higioth, incidentally, Higioth, 
was one of the extra wives of David. One of the extra wives of David. Remember, David had a wife who was the daughter of Saul. He later got another wife when he took over a, a certain section and he won a war and he got a wife. He got another wife through lust when he lusted after Bathsheba. He got this wife in another way. And Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run after him. And his father, listen to this, had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very handsome man, and his mother bore him after Absalom. Now, what's that saying? It's simply saying that that father did very little to discipline the son. He did not bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is David, the man after God's own heart. One of the heartbreaks of the Bible is to find godly men, men who really love the Lord, who somehow fail to understand the scriptural injunction concerning bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 19 to 22, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamoth, the daughter of Heres of Jotboth. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. And he walked in all the ways that his father walked in. And he served the idols that his father served and worshiped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and walked not in the way of the Lord. Now, why did he do it? Why did Ammon live a life like that? Ammon got it from his daddy, Manasseh. Manasseh was a careless walker. Manasseh didn't care how he lived. And Ammon imitated the precepts and example of his daddy. In Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's a terrible truth, but it's true. Not long ago, I asked three fathers, what in your life will most greatly influence your sons to walk in the ways of his father to righteousness? A composite of their answer are these four statements. Number one, let my children know I really mean with my life what I say with my lips. Consistency. Number two, no compromise with convictions. Number three, administering discipline in love. Number four, teach my children the real reason why their father walks the way he does because it pays to serve Jesus. Teach them that. And then I ask, what makes children walk in wickedness? Those three fathers answered the composite of their answer, a lack of godly discipline. And then I ask a boy who did not follow Christ, although his parents went to church regularly. I said to him, why are you so rebellious? Why do you not go when you're...
to com not to reveal his name. wasn't in this church. That young man said to me, three reasons. Number one, hypocrisy at home. My parents go to church, but they don't live at home what they do at church. Number two, my parents thought that the preaching of the pastor was not to be followed, that he was only giving ideals out, that they were not things you could put into life. And they used to sit around the table at dinner and tear the preacher apart. And number three, they were critical of the church and its pastor. Now, I don't know whether that's really the truth about that, what that boy told me, but it's something to think about, isn't it? Something to think about. In a day when we see so many young men, young women, walking away from God instead of running to God, what is the reason? What is the cause? The Bible clearly tells us some injunctions, some spiritual precepts, some axioms, some admonitions. What that boy said to me was sustained by a statement made by one of the most effective youth workers in America when he said this, with few exceptions, every boy or girl I have seen rebel against God and the church and life rooted his rebellion in some sort of rebellion or permissiveness in the home. I'm not trying to paint a sordid picture this morning. But I would like to lay on our hearts that as goes the home, so will go our nation. And when moms and dads in the home begin to build on precept and example, I believe we're going to have a different world. With this in mind, may I suggest to you, not from my own experience, but from the Word of God, an abundant observation, a formula for fathers, and mothers, if we would have a son or daughter walk in the paths of righteousness rather than the paths of wickedness, number one, honor the Word of God. Number two, habitually set a standard consistency with no compromise. A man that smokes, how can he say to his son, don't smoke? A man that drinks, how can he say to his son, don't drink? man that curses, how can he say to his son, don't curse? A man that satisfies his sexual desires outside the home, how can he say to his son, be chaste and disciplined? A woman that sucks a cigarette in the home, how can she say to her daughter, be pure and clean, don't do this? A woman that sits around listening to the soap operas all day, how this man had some kind of an affair with somebody else's wife and some child is born, nobody knows whose child it is. It may be, maybe have one or two or three different fathers. Who knows? And as long as a mother sits in the home and gobbles up all that stuff, how can she say to her daughter, don't do that? Number three, harbor your home in love, love that is obvious. Number four, heal the breaches with meaningful discipline, definite responsibilities. Number five, help lead your son or daughter to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Very briefly in the moments that remain to me, I want to give you three thoughts concerning that passage. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Number one, the responsibility of a father. The responsibility of the father is given over and over again in the Scripture to teach. In Deuteronomy 6, we're told that the father's responsibility is to teach. In Deuteronomy 31, gather the children together and teach them the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 22, over and over again, the Scripture reminds us, listen to this, in Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him early. In Proverbs 19, verse 18, chasten thy son while there is hope. Let not thy soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That may not promise that you train up a child and he'll never have any kind of rebellion in his heart. But it does say you implant those principles, those truths, that word of God in that young man, that young woman's heart. And it's going to be there. Now, he may rebel against it. He may not always obey it, but it's going to be there. There's no way to take it away. Whatever you put into a child is going to be there. If you plant deceit, if you plant discord, if you plant hate, if you plant all kinds of seeds of scorn, they're going to be there. But if you'll put the Word of God in that child's heart mingled with a great, great portion of love, you put God's Word there, when that child gets into the turmoil of teenage years, there may come those natural days of rebellion. There may come those natural moments when that son or daughter will disobey mom or dad a little bit. But I want to tell you those same principles are going to be there and later on, those principles will be reflecting deep down in the soul. Now that young man, young woman may not live by them. They may flout them, they may throw them away, but they're going to be there. A dear young man who was taught by his mother and daddy to love God with all of his heart, taught by precept and example to be in God's house, somewhat flouted those principles, and then knelt by his mother's grave and promised God that the principles she taught him is going to start living by them. Yesterday I went out to the grave. One of the dear young boys who died in our church a number of years ago, he died in June, about this time of the year. I stood by that grave a long time reflected on the principles that had been planted in his heart. I thank God that he left behind him a testimony. Even though his life was cut off when he was 16, he left behind him a testimony of faith in Christ. Was he perfect? No. Anybody that knew him as a teenager, you'd know that he wasn't perfect, though his mother and daddy surely loved him and perhaps could never see any faults in him. But I want to tell you, that young man had principles. And he had a commitment to Jesus Christ. And I think we can say with all the assurance of the Word of God, that young boy is with Jesus today. Why? Because principles, spiritual, scriptural truths from the Word of God were put into his heart from early life. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, where does the righteousness, how about the righteousness of the man? 
Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. I think that scripture, provoke not your children to wrath, the word wrath has to do with rebellion. It also has to do with scorn. It has to do with not acceptance. And the injunction is, fathers, do not provoke your children to the point where they'll rebel against God, against love, and against their home. Now that word provoke doesn't always mean beating them. That word provoke doesn't always mean mistreating them. Sometimes it can be failure to give them the word. Sometimes it can be failure to love them, to put your arms around them and love them. I read about a father whose son was expelled from high school because of some misdeed in the school. The only way he could get back was for the father to go with the son. The father read the letter from the school. His boy was about 16. He took his boy outside. He said, son, I've not done this in a long time, but I'm going to whip you. You see this letter and you know what you've done. I love you, but I've ignored you and I've, I've, not, I've mistreated you because I haven't really given you the discipline you ought to have had. Now, son, take your coat off. That boy said, I'm not going to do it. Dad said, take your coat off. I'm not going to do it. And that boy, that dad stood up at his full length. And with all the authority that that boy had not seen in that daddy's eyes for years, he said, son, I said, take your coat off right now. And the boy took his coat off. And the dad gave him the thrashing of a lifetime. And then he said, now, dad, son, you get out here and pray with me. And they got down on their knees and prayed. And that daddy, with tears, poured his heart out to God and told God how much it hurt him and how he neglected his own son and how his son now had been expelled and talked about all the sins of his son. He asked God to forgive them both. When he got up, his boy, broken, with tears, put his arms around his daddy, said, Daddy, you're not going to have any more problems with your son anymore. You don't have any more problems. Discipline and love. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's what God's Word says. When God says it, He means it. T.J. Powell was born in 1921. When he was 17, his father and mother were always fussing and always fighting and arguing. His father was drunk. Came home one night and started beating his mother. This father just with slugs and fists just beating his mother and the boy said, TJ said, Dad, you get away from mother or I'll intervene, I'll stop you. Daddy said, get out of the way, son. He went on beating his mother and TJ took a gun, a rifle, shot his daddy. There he was lying silent on the floor. I noticed T.J. was only 17. They arrested him. They put him in prison for 15 years he was in prison for killing his own daddy. In 1954 I was in a revival meeting in South Alabama 
This was, I was reminded of this story this week because of a man that I saw told me about it. I was in a revival. We went out in the country and uh, I met T.J. Powell. He was on a horse, had a big old straw western hat on, he had a wife and five children. T.J. never went to church. He thought he was in reject of society. I said, T.J., wouldn't you like to give your heart to the one who gave his very life so that your sins could be forgiven? Even the sin of killing your own daddy could be all forgiven and cleansed. Tears came to T.J.'s eyes and he got off of his horse. I showed him from the word of God how he could be saved and how all those sins could be cleansed away. We both got down on our knees on the farm. T.J. Powell, the man who had murdered his own daddy, asked God to forgive him and save him. Lord Jesus came into his life. I've forgotten how many years ago that was, 54 to 79. The pastor of that church in Leroy, Alabama, I met him. He said, Richard, old T.J. still loves you. Every once in a while he mentions that experience. And he said, do you know that T.J. is still going great for God? And what's more, T.J. has five children. Every one of them loves Jesus. They're all faithful to the Lord. Not any of them drink, not any of them smoke. And they're faithful Christians. Why? Because T.J. Powell got things settled in his own life. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. God moved in and changed the direction of his entire future. Now God can do that same thing. The Bible tells us God's standard for a righteous man, a godly man. He says in Acts chapter 6, to that early church that was getting ready to, to elect deacons, he said to them, Choose you out seven men who have these qualifications. They're of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, and they're available to be appointed over the business of God. Those are four qualifications. And again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Scripture gives, gives injunctions concerning the qualifications of a godly man. Listen to this. In 1 Timothy 3, in like manner must the deacon be grave, that means sincere, not double-tongued, not talking out of two sides of your mouth, not saying one thing at church and another thing at home, not sitting there listening to the preacher and then going home and saying that preacher expects us to do too much for God, those preacher's standards are too high, not double-tongued, not given to much wine right on the liquor question, not guilty of filthy lucre, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let those first also be proved. Let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, sincere, not slanderers. That word in the original means not gossips, not getting on the phone, repeating a whole bunch of gossip stuff. Sober-minded, faithful in all things. That means being faithful, going to the Lord's house, being faithful to the things of God, let the deacon be the husband of one wife, ruling their own children and their own houses well. 
For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see, God gives a standard for righteousness. And then he tells us there's a reward for those who serve faithfully the Lord. There's a reward. Abraham exerted a great spiritual influence on his family. Jacob passed on to his sons the spiritual expectation of godliness. Manoah prayed for instruction for this coming son. David gave godly advice to Solomon. And Joseph stood as a spiritual strength to every one of us. Do you know that Joseph, I refer to the husband of Mary, Joseph was one of the most magnanimous men in all the Bible. We give him very little attention. But Joseph was the kind of man that every teenage man ought to say, I'd like to be that kind of man. I'd like to be that kind of father. He was engaged to a girl whose name was Mary. And Mary was with child. Being a just and honest man, Joseph decided he would put her away privately break the engagement because obviously she had some kind of relationship outside of their engagement and God said in a dream Joseph don't do that that holy thing which is conceived in Mary is of God he shall be called the son of the highest you'll call his name Jesus and Joseph was on such speaking terms with God that he listened to what God said the scripture says that he took Mary to himself and he knew her not until after the birth of the first son, Jesus. That's the kind of man God can trust. A man who is not overcome of his temptations, who is not overcome with the whims and desires of the flesh, but one who is overcome by the Spirit of God, one who is filled with the holiness of Christ, one who allows the Holy Spirit to control his life. That's the kind of man God wants every daddy to be, every teenager to be, that's the kind of God, man God will bless. Could you accept that as a challenge in our lives today? Could every man here, could every boy here say, I want to be that kind of man as I grow in the Lord? May we pray, every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, we thank Thee for what the Word of God teaches concerning our fathers after the flesh concerning the strength of manhood. We pray that just now the Holy Spirit of God will bring across this congregation a spirit of conviction, drawing men and women and boys and girls close to Jesus. May this be a glorious hour of victory. In his name we ask it. Amen. Would you stand, please? Now I'd like to ask that no one leave during the singing of this invitation. This is God's invitation. And I believe everyone in here can stay in this building. Now don't leave. Just stay right where you are. And beloved friend, if you're here and you've never been saved, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
If you've never given your heart to Christ, you can do it now, right now. I urge you to do it. Some of you have already been saved. You need to walk down this aisle and make public your faith in Christ. Some of you need a church home. You need to come and say, I want to be part of the Glendale Fellowship. I want to help build a strong church here at this place. I'm going to cast my spiritual lot here. Ask God to use me here. Will you come? There's some here who need to recommit your life to Christ. Just start over again. Say, Lord, I need a renewed walk with the Savior. God help me to do it. Who will step out first for the King as we begin to sing. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Would you come? Stepping out for Christ right now. God help you to do it quickly. Come for Jesus' sake this morning.